Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the potentially Patreon-exclusive Episode 3 of X-Lapse Point 1, or, again, uh, Imperius Rex Lapsed, I suppose we could call it. Uh, we continue our Golden Age investigation of uh, the exploits of the first Marvel mutant, Namor the Submariner. And so far, I tell you what, it's been quite the education. Now, before we get into it, I want to thank everyone for listening today and being a part of this little journey with me. It really means so, so much. And just like with the first two episodes of this program, I am recording this ahead of time, so I have it ready on the day that the uh, Patreon potentially launches. So I can't name names just yet, but uh, rest assured, if you're listening, I greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get into today's book. This is Marvel Mystery Comics number 3, which had a January 1940 Cover date. Hey, we're out of the decade of the 30s, so we're just we're just rushing along here. We'll be uh, at the present day um, in 65 years or so. Anyway, this story is called Prince Namor the Submariner by Bill Everett, with edits by Martin Goodman. The issue itself had a cover price of 10 cents. Now we pick up right where we left off last issue. Namor is a menace, and the NYPD are struggling with ways that they can defeat him. Now, it's decided that uh, since Namor seems to have a weakness for pretty young things, like Miss Drayson last issue, the, the girl who uh, caught herself on fire with a cigarette, they'll employ the, quote, easy-on-the-eyes officer Betty Dean to bait him into showing himself. And I ask you, what could possibly go wrong? And so Captain Dossie calls for Ms. Dean to meet him in his office, and there he gives her the skinny on what's going on and what's expected of her. Now, she is to wear some casual clothes, hang out at Battery Park, and then toss herself into the drink and pretend like she's drowning. Namor, since he helped Ms. Drayson when she was, <laughs> you know, on fire last issue, will hopefully come to Betty's aid as well. And so, we head back to Betty's apartment where she fills in her roommate Esther on what she's got to do this evening. And I tell you what, I like this Ms. Dean already. Now, it's worth noting that she describes Namor as being half-man, half-fish, and half-bird. So, uh, math really isn't her thing. Uh, she gets into her evening attire with uh, her bathing suit underneath, and little old Roscoe in her purse, just in case, and uh, we could probably assume that Roscoe is uh, the name of her pistol. So, let's get to Battery Park. We got Betty, she's walking by the water, and Prince Namor is kind of just out in the bay, bobbing in the surf, you know, like you do. This is quite a notable scene, though, because this is the first appearance in comics of the Brooklyn Bridge. How about that? Now, upon noticing the spray Namor is causing in the water, which, ew, she dives in and starts to cry for help. Namor pauses, wondering if he should assist, and I mean, it's a pretty woman, so ultimately he decides to do it. Now, as he makes his approach, Betty feigns as though she's fainted. Namor scoops her up and takes her to the surface. There, she pulls old Roscoe out of her purse and presses the barrel right up to the side of Subby's dome. And I mean, you know, the captain wasn't terribly thorough, but shouldn't old Darcy have warned her that guns don't do much to this guy? Oh, well, it's a moot point anyway, because Namor just slaps the gun out of her hand, and uh, he then tells her that, uh, you know what? I can use you. Hmm, for what? Well, we'll never know, because just then, a Nazi plane swoops in and starts dropping bombs. Namor is oddly startled by the bomb bursts. He props Ms. Dean on a nearby buoy before heading into action. Now, this bomber continues to uh, 
bomb. It bombs a ship that's in the uh, in the drink here. And uh, Namor notices the periscope of a submarine peeking out of the water and decides to go and investigate. Now, once underwater, he notices a torpedo. And it's funny, he didn't know what a gun was or what bullets were last issue, but he knows torpedoes. Oh, well, I, I mean... Underwater is his kingdom, I suppose uh, he should know about uh, some of the dangers of uh, being underwater Namor then uh, gets on the torpedo, he rides it back toward the German U-boat And he sends it safely into the mud below He then checks out the rig and decides to climb in through that torpedo tube Because he can't find any other way in Once inside, he proceeds to pound on the walls The Germans inside open the hatch to see what's up And Namor bursts in and proceeds to whoop some Nazi ass He commands the Germans to raise the U-boat to the surface, and once there, he uses their own cannon to shoot down the Nazi bomber. He then ties the U-boat's periscope into a knot and then hops back into the drink to check on the Allied ship that the bomber done bombed. Now, Namor sees that this ship isn't long for the world, and so he summons all of his strength and pushes it to shore. Oh, and by the way, the U-boat crashes into land and explodes, because it doesn't have a periscope anymore, I guess. Uh, Once on dry land, Namor is reunited with Betty Dean. He calls out to her to help him save the crew members of this ship, and so she does. One of the sailors is able to mutter something about being British and having to look out for submarines before he ultimately perishes. Namor turns to Betty and says, hey, so what's next? Which, I don't know about you, feels like a uh, sudden and astonishing change of heart for our uh, violent submariner, doesn't it? Uh, Betty commends Namor on his good deed and asks if he'll help out with the Allies' cause. She describes Americans as being gentle and easygoing, and she doesn't think Namor should harbor any ill will toward them. And it doesn't take much to change Namor's mind, apparently, because he's totally ready to do whatever bidding she'll ask of him. And so she tells him of an enemy flotilla and mind blockade southeast of New York. Namor's like, hey, I'm on it, and he swims ten minutes out. There, he comes across the mind blockade. He decides to move the mines into the path of an Axis destroyer ship, He then shouts submarine, which gets the destroyer to change course right into the mines. Now this ship sinks and explodes, so uh, double our pleasure. Then two more enemy battleships do the very same thing. Our hero then notices more U-boats and decides to screw with them too. He rips the propeller off the back of one, but then changes his mind. He decides that he's going to give this win to the Allied troops. He hops out of the drink and onto an aircraft carrier. He tells the men about the U-boats, and though a little trepidatious about trusting the previously evil submariner, the sub-chasers are dispatched and the Nazis are rounded up. Namor is pleased that this all worked out, but he's worried about what he'll have to tell his mother regarding his teaming up with the White Devil Land Dwellers. And we wrap up with Namor checking back with Betty Dean, and she's surprised that he came back at all, and she hands us our cliffhanger as well because she asks the prince, If from this point on, he'll continue aiding them and the Allies' cause. And maybe we'll get that answer next time. So what do we got here? Uh, It seems as though the uh, Land Dwellers kind of had Namor's number pretty quick. You put put an attractive woman in front of him, and uh, he's pretty much uh, putty. He's going to do whatever you need him to do. Even get involved with a uh, world war, it seems. Which uh, I guess folks have gone to war for less than that, right? Probably, it stands to reason, so uh, why not? I do definitely appreciate how uh, Namor is quite conflicted by all this. Like, he feels good about what he's doing. He's helping out a cause that he believes in, but 
in so doing, he's also turning his back on his people and his uh, his birthright war, I suppose. You know, the war on the land dwellers. Makes you wonder how Princess Fen is going to receive this news when he eventually gets around to telling her and pleading his case that maybe the Americans aren't quite as bad as he's been raised to believe. Now, granted, with the quickness in which he changed his mind and his tune about the Americans, I could see it going back just as quick. Uh, he's basically told by uh, Betty Dean that, hey, you know what? Americans are gentle and kind and nice. And he's just like, okay, sounds good. You know, where maybe he'll meet an even better looking woman who says, no, nah, no, nah, Americans suck. And he'll be like, yeah, you know, you're right. Whichever way it goes, though, we will be there for it. And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how this uh, how this all plays out, seeing the Submariner's first uh, heroic acts here, or at least heroic from our land-dweller point of view, <laughs> you know, where he's not just murdering people because they happen to be in the water. And I'm also definitely looking forward to seeing him cross paths with uh, some of his timely peers, most notably uh, the Human Torch. I think that's going to be interesting, you know, uh... When we started Essential X Lapsed, I got very excited the first time we saw Namor. I think it was uh, X-Men number six, because that to me said that the X-Men were part of the Marvel Universe, that they all shared the same air. Of course, I had missed the fact that uh, Angel had guest spotted in an Iron Man story a couple months before that, but we did cover that one as well. But just the idea that these heroes are in the same, the same world is something that's very cool to me. Especially going back this far when that might not have been something that anybody ever thought of. Each strip could have been its own thing, its own universe, its own world, and never cross paths with, you know, anything else. But that wasn't the way they went. They actually crossed these folks over, and I think that's going to be really, really cool when we finally get there. But even this pre-team-up uh, chapter was a lot of fun. And I, like I said, it's quite the education for me. Never really dipping my toe into the Marvel Golden Age uh, like I'm doing right now. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> it's really cool to see. And I think last episode I mentioned something about how it's this odd disparity between like grit and innocence and that that basically sums up these golden age stories for me so far it's they're very gritty but they're also very innocent and there's definitely a a charm to them that's different from anything else that i've read you know they feel very different from silver age they certainly feel different from what we have today it's just an interesting era to visit and spend some time in, and I couldn't be happier that we're doing it right now. And uh, if you're listening, you're along with me for this journey, and I think uh, I think we're in for some fun. So I'm looking forward to many more stories with Marvel's first mutant. But Prince Namor the Submariner was not the only character to appear in Marvel Mystery Comics number three. We've got several features here, which I'm just going to name the titles of, because I didn't read them. Uh, we've got The Human Torch in Menace from Mars by Carl Burgos, and it's worth noting, we're finally getting story titles here, rather than just Human Torch by Carl Burgos or uh, Submariner by uh, Bill Everett. Now we had Prince Namor, the Submariner here, but looks like we're finally getting some titles. We also had The Angel in The Voodoo Sacrifice by Paul Gustafson, The Masked Raider in The Land Grabbers by Al Anders, American Ace in Origin of American Ace Part 2 by Paul Loretta, and this is a continuation of uh, the story that appeared in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly Number 1, I believe. We got Siegfried's Suicide by David C. Cook and Bill Everett, which is a one-shot war story. 
And we've got Adventures of Kazar the Great, third episode by Ben Thompson. And while I'm not reading these other features, I am keeping a close eye on who appears in them, just in case we do get a Namor appearance in one, or, uh... Well, here's a question to anybody listening. Uh, what do we do about Toro? Toro, you know, the Human Torch is a kid sidekick who, for the longest time, was believed to be a mutant. That is, of course, before he was retconned into being an inhuman around 2012, 2013 or so. But, uh, for, uh, boy, much of the... You know, 50, 60 years before that, he was believed to be a mutant. So, do we cover him? Do we ignore him? <laughs> Let me know what you think, and uh, I will be more than happy to take all suggestions under advisement. Now, if you'd like to reach out to opine on that or anything, you could find me several different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Blog posts and show notes are on chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And, of course, the archives are available for you at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. In the event that this is a Patreon-exclusive episode, you are listening at the new feed at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I'm fairly certain it's pretty easy to get that on your listening device, but uh, if you have any questions, please let me know, and I will try to get those answers as best as I can. Now, with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for your support and for joining me for a little while today. It really does mean the world. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.